Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Step. Piki mai, kake mai, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance, tēnei. Later in the show, we find out about making liquid fuels from sawdust. But first, robots. The word robot, which means forced labour, was first used nearly a century ago in a Czech play. The first autonomous robots were built just after the Second World War. But while industrial robots are now commonplace in factories, they haven't made much of an impact in our everyday lives. That's despite experts promising that the robot revolution is just around the corner. Of course, they've been promising that for a while now. But in the meantime, robots make for great entertainment, and they certainly drew the crowds at the International Science Festival in Dunedin over the last couple of weeks. I went along to check out a couple of robotic events, and first up was a very engaging encounter with a little robot and its human minders visiting from China. Uh, my name is Kai. And Kai, can you introduce me to this little robot on the table? This robot is a humanoid robot. It's an open platform, which means that it's totally programmable. So the students, the kids, the researchers, they can use their imaginations to uh, program the robot to do whatever they want to do. So the robot's called NOW, yeah. N-A-O. Yes. And if I'm going to interact with it, what kind of things can NOW do? Uh, NOW actually can dance, can talk. Hello. Hello, Alison. What do you like doing now? I like listening to the radio. What's your favourite radio programme? I'm sure it's having difficulty with my accent. Uh, you had to try to speak US uh, English. <laughs> What's your favourite programme? The opposite of what isn't your favourite programme. <laughs> That was my best American accent. <laughs> What's your favourite programme? I like our changing world on RNZ. That is a perfect answer. Thank you. <laughs> Easy peasy. Now may be programmed to understand American rather than Kiwi accents, but in most respects it has a very international pedigree. Hi, Alison. I'm Alex Chen. I'm, I'm travelling from Shanghai, China. I'm from SoftBank Robotics. Can you tell me a little bit about the company and what it does? Yeah, uh, SoftBank Robotics. Actually, uh, originally, we're from France, Europe. Uh, we have launched two robots. First is the now robot, uh, 8 centimetres tall. And uh, in 2015, we have launched a paper robot in Japan. It's a uh, human-sized uh, service robot. Uh, so this might be a robot that I have in my house 
um, that might keep me company, that might do basic things for me? Uh, I think what you mean is you expect to have a human-shaped robot, can help you cooking, make a coffee, maybe do the cleaning the house, something like that. But we're not there yet. So until today, uh, they can be companion to other people live alone, can help them to send and read emails and read news, you know, and uh, checking information like uh, restaurants, like uh, grocery, like uh, where, where, where to buy grocery, something like that, yeah. Even make a video calls with your pa- uh, family. And uh, uh, we also have a prototype robot called Romeo. It's a very advanced uh, service robot. It can take care of the older people live alone. For example, leave the uh, people from the floor uh, provide some basic medical treatment, but still it's not yet to launch yet. Uh, the cost is very high, and also we still have some um, technology problems to, to solve. Yeah. So these robots are programmed. That must be the key to it, what you can program it to do. Uh, yes. For our robots, they are just platform. So how you want uh, to use it, how, how you want the robots can do, it depends on your imagination. So it depends on how creative you are. So you basically can program them to do everything. Yeah. The key point is empathy. Like in, in France, uh, uh, we, have, we have launched a paper robot with Carrefour, the supermarket. So if you want to grab some, for example, some T-shirt and you don't know where to get, so just ask robots. The robots will show you how to get it. So for this kind of information, um, I mean, companies can also provide a screen, like an iPad, right? But the difference is... Um, when you see a human-shaped robot, when you see that eyes, you feel empathy, you feel connected. That's the difference. It's like a part of our life. No, it's very different, yeah. So Pepper isn't going to be a member of my household for a while yet. But in the meantime, I've got now to entertain me. It's going to do the chicken dance for me. Hmm? Hmm, I got it. So it's wriggling its fingers and bending its knees and clapping its hands. Yes, actually, actually now has his own personality, he can make his own decisions. We can uh, train the now robots, the uh, machine learning, to let the robots to keep learning new, new things. I have to say, taste and music aside, now's dancing is very good. I can imagine children really like interacting with now. Yes, indeed. And the kids are really love to um, interact, to speak, to touch the robots. And they also want to learn how to um, uh, control the robots, how to uh, learn the science behind the robots. Now is rather talented in a number of areas. Sports, for instance. This robot is a standard platform for the Rob Cup competition for soccer game. So every year, 28 universities from 18 countries attend this competition. So the purpose to have this competition is in 2045, the robotic soccer team will beat human soccer team. But now you can see um, it's still slow and uh, not not as fast as human. But uh, the potential is huge, you know, and they can keep on evolving. I'm imagining playing soccer is reasonably tricky in that you've got to still keep it stable while it's kicking, like kicking yeah. with one leg. 
Yeah, and also you have to uh, make a robot to try to keep on chasing the balls by the camera, you know. So it's got a camera in the middle of its forehead. Actually, yeah, the two eyes you're looking at are not, not really eyes for robot. They are two infrared sensors. It's a humanoid robot. So, you know, for human, we have many sensors. Like, for example, we can see with our eyes, we can listen with our ears, we can smell with our nose, we can taste the things with our mouth, and also we can feel touch. So right now, for our robots, um, it can see with camera. It can listen um, by microphones, listen your voice, and try to understand you. It can speak with the loudspeakers. It can also feel touch. You know, we also have some touch sensors on the head, on the hand. So when it touch it, it can give you a response. So yeah, pretty much we try to make a robot, just like a, how human works. You know, yeah. Now I'm told that it mm. does Tai Chi as well. Yeah, of course. Tai Chi dance. Can I impress you with a relaxing dance? Yes. You can try and reproduce my movements if you want. I hope it will impress you. I've got it. Oh. Oops. Nails toppled over. Oh, what am I doing on the floor? Oh. Now it's trying to get up. I can't get up. Bad luck. Stay calm and keep trying later. It was doing quite well in its Tai Chi routine. It's just fallen over. Oh, yeah. Can it get itself up again? Yes, of course, yeah. But the right leg has some mortal problem. We've been giving it a hard time here mm. in New Zealand, have we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because... Uh, because Basically, we, every day we just demonstrate uh, and, uh, to the kids, you know, from morning to the, after, the afternoon. So that's why I've been working too hard for him, for this little cute robot. The kids of Dunedin are certainly enthusiastic about robots, as I discover at an international science festival event in which kids are given the opportunity to make their own bristle bot. Bristle bots are simple walking robots that look uncannily like little bugs. They're powered by a small vibrate motor, just like the one you've got in your mobile phone. And the other key ingredient is a toothbrush. I'm Joshua and this is Isaac. Hi Isaac. Hi. So you've just been handed a toothbrush. What are you going to do with your toothbrush? Well, presumably not brush my teeth. (laughs) I'm going to be making a a little bristle bot with it. Should be able to run around. So you've got the motor part there, now you've got your toothbrush. Put it into hot water and then um, to loosen the bristles and then put it into cold water so you're going to set the bristles in the correct place. Oh, so you've got to set your direction. Right, or else we'll just bump up and down in the same place. You're waiting in line to build one of these, are you? Yep. So what stage are you up to? Putting on a toothbrush head. You're going to blue tack that onto the top of that. The kids are having a ball of a time as their bristle bots bustle somewhat randomly around. But it turns out there is a serious side to all this robotics fun. So I'm Mike Paulin. I'm a, a neuroscientist at the University of Otago. I'm Malcolm McIver. I'm a neurobiologist and engineer at the Northwestern University in, uh, near Chicago. Now, so this robotic chaos that's going on here, is this your fault, Mike? <laughs> I, I guess it is, yeah. I started making these little robots for fun a few years ago, and then now we do it as a, as a fun thing for kids. What are those little robots inspired by? Are they inspired by anything in particular? Well, I think of them as models of, of simple animals, um, little animals without brains, so we can use to study how brains evolved. 
you go back 500 million years, when animals first started moving, they didn't have any brains, and they used to move around on the ocean floor on bristles, and so these little toothbrush robots move in the same way that ancient animals used to move before they had brains. So I'm really interested in you know, what happened 500 million years ago that they evolved brains, that they started to develop brains and eventually turned into us. What is it about robots that is exciting at the moment? I mean, obviously these kids are really excited, but in the broader field of robotics, what's, what's, what's going on and what's uh, exciting? A lot of different things. One of the things is getting uh, robots to have more sensory intelligence. So, you know, you get up in the middle of the night and you have no problem getting around the house in the darkness and with lots of ambiguity in the signals and... Uh, robots have a hard time unless you have a very carefully controlled environment, but that's changing. So we're learning how to teach robots to deal with uncertainty in their in their sensory environment, how to interpret signals despite lots of noise and lots of ambiguity. So that's one area that's very exciting. Another area that's getting a lot of people's attention is autonomy. So autonomous cars, autonomous air taxis here in New Zealand... Uh, so the technology behind that is uh, it's all about processing your environment and predicting what's going to be happening in the future so that you don't have a robot, say, running into a bicyclist. So that's another area that's very exciting right now in, in robotics. So how does your work with, with, say, insects and spiders and animal brains, for instance, feed into how robots are developing? So we, we use simple animals as model systems. So we know, for example, an ant is, you know, ants don't bump into things. Ants are smarter than the smartest robots we have these days. So we're interested. We know there must be a way of making really, really simple, low-powered robots that are really, really smart. And so we look at the animals and how they're put together and try and figure out are there really efficient, really simple ways that we can make intelligent robots. So that's the kind of thing we have going over here, the little simple computer chips on these robots, driving them around using really simple techniques to figure out what's happening around them and steer themselves through the environment. So I saw one girl working with a robot that was responding to light. Yes. Yeah, so that's the, that's the simplest one, where we just hook up a little light sensor to, to a, a little vibrating motor, and that just puts a little more energy on one side of the robot and pushes it in the other direction. So it just shows how, you know, if you go back in evolution, animals can learn how to connect up different sensors to different muscles and develop complicated behaviours that do interesting things. And one of the things you see actually emerging here is actually representative of another exciting, uh, fairly new area of robotics, which is swarm robotics. So uh, people are putting their bristle robots down on this big board and they're interacting and they're forming little patterns and such. And this is actually a really intense area of inquiry right now amongst roboticists is how do you get swarms of independent robots working together toward a collective goal, much like termites making a mound or cooperative hunting in, in whales, that sort of thing. And, and so this is kind of, it's interesting to see this spontaneously emerge over here on the left. Mm-hmm. At one end of the table you've got the simple little robots with no brains, and at this end of the table you've got slightly more complicated robots with little brains, and I'm interested in that transition and evolution, you know, how did the very first brains evolve, and why did they evolve, and how do they work? I'm very like Malcolm in, in that I'm really interested in brains and really interested in robots, but I don't have any money like he has, right? So I have to, I have to, find, I have to build really simple robots and see if I can get the robots to figure out how to build their own brains. 
I mean, the kind of robotics we're doing is, is very similar, both bio-inspired, both, you know, we, we think a lot about robotics as a tool for humans to, to use, driving cars, whatnot, folding our laundry, hopefully, at some point in the future, who knows how long from now. But uh, the way both Mike and myself use robots is, is more like how one would approach a microscope. It's a tool for inquiry. It's a, it's a way to get insight into nature. We, we use them to build our knowledge uh, we have of animals into the machine, and then the machine teaches us what the next problem we should look at in animals. Uh, it's, it's kind of a synergistic back-and-forth relationship. So they're really research tools in addition to something that may eventually be quite useful around the household. And, and we... Um, look at insects. So if you look at ants on the bench, the ants will come out and eat the food off your bench, clean your bench for you, and then they run away and hide when you come. Well, that tells us that it's possible to make a little robot that could come out and clean your bench and run away and hide when you're not around. And it must be possible for those robots to power themselves from the stuff they clean off your bench. So instead of having some big robot, you know, wearing an apron and, and, and slippers <laughs> that comes in and cleans your bench and creates all kind of rubbish and throws it out. You have tiny little robots that hide down the cracks behind the bench and they come out and they clean your bench and they live off the stuff they clean off your bench and you never see them because they run away and hide. So in the future, I think, we'll have little armies of little robot insects that will clean your house and they will just take care of themselves. Well, apart from cleaning benches, what else do you see swarms of robots doing? Oh, all kinds of things. One of the things we're interested in getting them to do is um, inspection of uh, coral reefs that are under stress and inspection of sunken ships and uh, structures that uh, need to be inspected periodically that you could have swarms of these robots go around and do inspection from multiple points and and look at whether a structure is, is in stress and needs to be repaired, for example, or a coral reef needs to be taken care of due to bleaching, for example. So each little one could collect a bit of information, come exactly. back and feed it exactly. into a mothership. Right. I mean, currently what's, what's done is you send a single diver out, and what you really need is, like, hundreds, mm-hmm. but nobody can afford that. So we're drastically, in the case of coral reefs, undersampling what is going on and so we have a very incomplete picture just because it's so expensive to send human divers out so if we could have swarms of uh, less expensive robots going around collecting data this would be immensely useful so that's that's one of the research fronts and you get lots more information because these robots can spread out over large areas and all be collecting little bits of information they all send that information back to some central computer to be analyzed so we get a lot of work done for for not very much effort so we're right on the cusp of an exciting robotic future, do you reckon? Yes, um, probably in five or ten years, our life will be changed a lot due to service robots. If you look back in the past ten years, how smartphones change our life, probably yeah, this will be the same, how service robots will change our life in the near future. Robots is uh, not just a tool, it's our companion. So maybe in one day, we can make uh, friends with robots. You are my friend. I think about the best way of being useful. Jolly good. Bye for now. I don't have anything to say about that. (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks, Nell. And a big thanks to Kai Fung and Alex Chun from SoftBank Robotics. Thanks, too, to bio-inspired robotics experts Mike Paulin from the University of Otago and Malcolm McIver from Northwestern University in the United States. 
They were all in Dunedin for the International Science Festival. And if you head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld, you'll find a short video of the Bristlebots, as well as Now's Tai Chi routine, complete with falling over. Kate Fakaronga mai koe kito tato al horihori kita reo irirangi o Aotearoa. You're with our changing world on RNZ National. I'm Alison Balance, and now biofuels are touted as an environmentally friendly alternative to traditional oil and petrol, but depending on how they're produced, they're not always as friendly as they claim. Scion is hoping that wood-based biofuel will be a good alternative. And I'm off to Rotorua to find out more about turning sawdust into liquid fuel. I meet Paul Bennett and Ferranda Miguel to find out what happens in the pyrolysis lab. So we um, heat up wood very quickly to about 450 degrees. It vaporises over about a second uh, to two seconds and then we capture the vapours. Why are we doing this? Turning this uh, wood into oil, it just makes it uh, a lot easier to move around, for example. So if you have a big pile of uh, sawdust somewhere, you can turn it into this oil and then just move it because it's a liquid. So you can easily put it in a truck and move it around and it's a lot cheaper to transport. Now I see you've got some samples for me on the bench there, so I presume that's the process that it steps through. What do we start with? What do we end up with? So we start with these bottles that we have here. So this is just like a small particles, basically small pieces of wood that we can put into our machine. In this case, this is just normal pine, just normal radiata pine that we have here in New Zealand. So it's chipped up pretty small. Yep, yep, quite, quite small. I think normally it's like a couple of mils, something like that. And then add heat. Yes, so basically what we do in this one, we then put it into the machine, into our pyrolysis plant, and as Paul said, it goes up to 450, 500 degrees, and then it evaporates all that wood and then once we have that wood evaporated, we cool it down to room temperature instantly. So we have like quenching, so it's really, really quick cooling. And then it makes this pyrolysis oil, which is the, the next bottle. Actually, if I didn't know that that was something that started off with wood, I'd have said it was something like oil for my lawnmower. Yeah, it's very similar to the oil that you would have uh, at the back of your wood fireplace, for example. But we do it properly. So for each kilogram of wood we make around 700 grams of this oil. So we make actually a lot of oil per each kilogram of wood. And what can you do with that oil? So you can do a a whole lot of things. You can burn it directly in a boiler, uh, and that is being done in some parts of the US, for instance. So it's burning pyrolysis oil for heat. Uh, But we're particularly interested in it in terms of trying to convert this pyrolysis oil into to liquids that are more useful, i.e. Um, transportation fuels, diesel and petrol. So how far down the track are you of doing that? Is this pretty early days still? Yes, it is pretty early days. There's um, a lot of technology um, de-risking to do, um, and we have to look at ways of um, upgrading this into oil, and it might be that we need to interface with refineries, for instance, to do that. And the wood that you're planning to use, is this wood that would otherwise not have a use? Uh, we, could, we could use waste, so the slash that's left in the forest after harvesting. We can use waste from the sawmill operations. But in the longer term, if we really want this to be material and make a big contribution to New Zealand, we'd have to look at energy forests and dedicated forests for energy purposes. 
I imagine there would be difficulties with that slash left behind by, from the forestry industry, for instance. It's spread all over the hillsides, all over the place. Mm. Whereas your machine, is it a portable thing or is it something that sits in one place and you bring the wood to it? It, it, it sits in one place and you bring wood to it. But it, it's smaller scale than a refinery, for instance, so you could have several of these and feed the uh, oil through to an oil refinery or a, a standalone upgrading plant. Yeah, so it's just different from the concept that we have now, which is one refinery. Like the petroleum industry, you have very one big plant, just uh, a very big one. Well, in this case, you could have multiple of these ones. So if you have like multiple forests, you would just bring one closer to the forest and then just turn that into oil, and then we could bring, for example, that oil up to the refinery. In one of the studies that, that we just finished also, it was called the Biofuels Roadmap, the New Zealand Biofuels Roadmap, uh, it was showing that big areas of interest were Northland, the central North Island, and East Cape. So by having this approach to, to bioenergy, it's a more distributed approach. So it can have good regional opportunities, regional development opportunities. Do you have any other waste products out of it, or does the wood go just to oil? Um, you have gas, and that's sort of a gas with an energy content, and you have uh, char as well. And what would typically be done with these in, a, in standalone plants is you would use the char and the gas to provide energy to heat the wood up. You do have a little jar of char there. So it's similar to our charcoal, but small pieces. Yeah. But as Paul said, in, a, in an industrial process, you have wood in, oil out. So all the char and all the gases are used internally to provide all the heat and electricity, so it's a self-sustaining process. So you just put wood in. So what kind of things are you testing? What are the different elements that you're trying to tease out? So there is a couple of things that we are currently researching. One of them is doing some pretreatment on the feedstock itself, so on the wood. So how can we actually, by doing something before the reaction, improve the product at the end? And is that drying it? Do you add things to it? Or? Oh, so one of the things that we do, so uh, the wood, when you start, has some ash in it. So we do uh, what we call an acid leaching treatment, which removes this ash. And what that happened, so we, we went, for example, the amount of oil that you make could go up from, let's say, 55 to 70%. So it makes a lot more, more oil just by doing this small pretreatment at the beginning. And there are mechanical approaches to pre-treating, so does the particle size affect the, the finished product? What fiber length um, you, you can do mechanical milling of wood and change the physical properties, for instance? So you're pretty excited about it? Yeah, pretty excited. This is part of a much bigger program around bioenergy here at Scion. Um, and, you know, we think bioenergy has a, a very significant role to play here in New Zealand. It addresses a lot of New Zealand's key challenges and key aspirations going forward. Net zero carbon, for instance, is a big thing. Um, Billion Trees program uh, is significant. All these things play right into the space that bioenergy should occupy going forward. So in New Zealand, we import um, about 8.5 billion litres of, of liquids, crude oil and finished products. We have plenty of land available to produce our own liquid fuels, and bioenergy is one way of, of doing that. Uh, so converting woody biomass into liquids for vehicles, whether they're road transportation vehicles, rail, ships, or even in the longer term, aeroplanes. One of the criticisms about some of the biofuels that are in use overseas is that land that's 
could be used for growing food, for instance. Suddenly we're growing things for biofuels mm. instead, or that we're encouraging forest clearance because countries are growing things for the biofuel industry. Do you think that criticism would hold for this? Uh, I think New Zealand is in a very different situation to other parts of the world. Um, what we're proposing is using woody biomass uh, for biofuel feedstocks, and woody biomass you would tend to grow on lower quality, cheaper land. That is land with a significant slope, and therefore you're not going to be growing any food on that sort of land. And as you say, there is the Billion Tree Project in train anyway. Yes, and a small portion of those trees will be uh, plantation-type forest. You have to then have a product that you can use or you can develop from those trees that you're planting, and bioenergy is one of those products. Is this a fuel that would run an engine on its own, or do you mix it with something else? Uh, The pyrolysis oil you can run in an engine, in a stationary engine, to produce heat and power. Um, And there are hospitals in North America that are using pyrolysis oil now. But to convert it into a liquid fuel for transportation, there is further work to do. One of the places I I recently visited was in the Netherlands, and it's a milk powder facility, so very similar to what we are doing here. So what they did is they uh, changed their gas boiler, they were using natural gas, and instead now they are having one on pyrolysis oil and one on biogas. So they have actually turned all their facilities to renewable energy. So that's something that will be really interesting and something that we could also do here in New Zealand. Also within the bioenergy program here uh, at Scion, we're looking at solid fuels, just replacing coal with wood or looking at ways of, uh, of upgrading wood so that it's a better direct replacement for coal. So what kind of things do you need to do to the wood to make it more useful in that regard? We can pelletise wood. So um, some people already have wood pellet burners. That's right. So, so we're looking at ways of pe- uh, pelletising wood directly from the forest. Uh, we're looking at ways of, of making those pellets slightly more uh, similar to coal and coal properties so that they can be a direct replacement for coal. Currently, if you try to blend wood or wood pellets into an existing coal boiler, you could maybe get 10% wood pellets versus 90% coal into that boiler. But if you do go through a process called torrefaction, which is very similar to the process you use to roast coffee beans, if you go through that process and then make pellets out of that torrefied wood, then you can get maybe 90% wood into an existing coal boiler potentially even 100% with some very minor modifications. So this is, for example, the pellets that we are talking. So it just looks like little spaghettis of uh, wood, basically. It looks exactly the same color as as wood. Well, these other ones, you can see that they are uh, a little bit blacker. So it's just a a little bit more similar to coal, basically. It's going towards coal. But in this case, they are blacker, and they burn a lot more similar to coal. So and they have a lot more energy than the original wood. So that's why you can actually mix them uh, and basically co-burn them with the coal in a much higher ratio. So the key thing about this is you could just use it in existing equipment. You don't need to change the equipment. Exactly. That's right. Changing equipment, changing boilers is very expensive. And a lot of boilers in New Zealand have been in, around for 30, 40, even 50 years in some instances. So they have a long lifetime, um, and asking 
an operator to swap out a boiler just to use a new, new fuel is a very expensive choice for them. So if we can offer them a new fuel, then they don't have to change the boilers. Thanks, Paul. That was Paul Bennett, and we also heard from Ferranda Miguel, and they are both at Crown Research Institute, Scion. And that's tonight's show. Thanks for your company. If you'd like to get in touch, we are RNZ Science on Facebook and Twitter, and you can always find all our stories, along with photos and links, at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. But for now, it's goodnight from me, Alison Balance, Modi Ora. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.